You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Before we get started, I'm excited to let you know that if you like the podcast and enjoy listening to episodes, these conversations are now available in book form. The book is called Unmuted, Conversations on Prejudice, Oppression, and Social Justice, and it is published by Oxford University Press. If you're listening before March 1st, head over to Amazon and pre-order a copy. And if you're listening after March 1st, run to your local bookstore or online and grab a copy today. You would not regret it. The book has a foreword by Cornell West, illustrations of contributors, an informative glossary section, and lots of accessible and interesting conversations. Get Unmuted, the book, today. Now, let's get into the episode. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Aaron Tarver. Aaron is an associate professor of philosophy at Oxford College of Emory University. Her interests are in feminist philosophy, American pragmatism, and philosophy of sports. Her books include The Eye and Team, Sports Fandom and the Reproduction of Identity, and Feminist Interpretations of William James. In this episode, we talk about sports fandom and identity, athletes and white supremacy, sports and gender, and so much more. Hello, Erin, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Tell me, Erin, how did you get interested in philosophy? Wow. Okay. So I grew up in a deeply religious background. So I actually grew up going to the Baptist church and was, as a result of that, really, really deeply invested in being a good person and doing the right thing. And I felt like in everything that I did, I wanted to make sure that I was doing what God would want me to do and, and to, to be the best person that I could be and basically all things. And, and so I went to college actually interested in religion um, and, and believing that I was going to go into ministry because of that background. And once I got to college, uh, I found myself in a, an honor seminar, actually, that was interdisciplinary. We studied history and literature and philosophy. And it was the first time I ever read philosophy. And I remember reading, it was actually uh, the Roman philosopher Cicero. And we read this, this piece that is called On the Good Life. And there's this whole section in On the Good Life where Cicero is talking about whether it's better to be a good person or to just seem like one uh, to people around you. And there's some discussion about like what really the difference is between being a good person and seeming to be one. And for some reason, uh, I was just completely broken up by this whole thing because I was really worried about whether I was actually good or merely seemed to be so. And I remember going home and talking to my roommate about how I needed to try to figure this out about the difference between being and seeming. And she was like, uh, what's wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) And so I was like, actually, I think what's wrong with me is I need to be a philosophy major. And this, this would, this would help me make sense of things. (laughs) And so actually from then on, I became a philosopher and I, I ended up moving away from, from study of religion in part because I felt like the kind of explanations I was getting from philosophy 
were sort of more compelling or they were they're able to speak to a wider range of people than than just speaking to people who are already within my religious tradition. Right. At, at your university, where, was the religion and, and philosophy department the same department or were they two different departments? It was actually the same. In fact, uh, so I went to a religious college and we couldn't major, in fact, just in philosophy. So I was an interdisciplinary philosophy and religion major as an undergraduate. Yeah. So my, my initial teachers, in fact, of philosophy were people who had seminary degrees, but who were particularly interested in studying from a philosophical perspective. Okay. So I want us to talk about your book. Okay. I in team sports fandom and the reproduction of, of identity. And I'm, I'm very, very interested in this conversation because I play sports growing up, uh, basketball in particular, and mm. I am a huge sports fan, basketball mm-hmm. fan. And I am, people may know about this podcast and those people who know me personally, I'm a huge fan of LeBron James. Uh-huh. Having said all of that, I'm, I'm, lo- I'm so looking forward to this conversation. So as you point out, there, there are several ways to describe a fan. And I wonder if you can give us some accounts of fandom. And despite their variations with each other, what do you think fans have in common on your view? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the surest ways to start an argument among sports fans <laughs> is to ask them what counts as a fan, right? right? So uh, interestingly, as I started doing research for this book, you know, of course, you come across lots of different ways of defining this. The, the oldest ways of defining fan, um, the oldest uses of that word uh, are not nice, actually. Uh, there, it's, it's, I'd say it's not a kind thing to call someone historically, like in the in the 1880s when it's first in use. And so basically people um, who used it then did it specifically to refer to basically these guys who were thorns in the side of baseball managers. So people who followed uh, teams and who were obsessive collectors of statistics and they had all of this knowledge um there's this guy named ted sullivan who was the the manager of this team that was at the time the the st louis browns um who says that there was this guy who was always coming around the clubhouse wanted to tell him how to run his team and stuff like that because he um, was so full of sports knowledge he says that it was bubbling out from him like the uh, steam from the pipes of a boiler or something and it it made his life miserable basically and so he called that guy a fan because um he said you know he's a fanatic um and he and he means that in a not in a nice way so interestingly though it, even there in that early stage you see that there the the sort of key thing about being a fan is the acquisition of excessive amounts of knowledge specific specifically like propositional knowledge about sports uh, contemporary fans obviously have have their own definitions um, their own ways of excluding people from the realm of real fans. So sometimes people suggest that what makes a fan is specifically team loyalty, right? So uh, you don't want to be a bandwagoner because that, right. that's not a real fan. So many fans will suggest that there's some, like, I don't know, amount of time that one needs to have been follower or a devotee of, of a team in order to count as a real fan. Interestingly, some philosophers of sport suggest that that team loyalty piece ought not be a part of fandom, 
And so there are some philosophers who say that actually, if you're a purist, meaning you're not um, like a partisan fan, you don't care about um, who's playing or who wins, you just love the sport itself and don't such a philosopher type explanation to say like, it's better to be someone who wants in the abstract the best team to win, not, oh, uh, you know, their own team. Of do course. those people exist? They do. They do, <laughs> do exist. There's a whole argument between like Steve, uh, Stephen Mumford and Nicholas Dixon about whether it's better to be a, a partisan or a purist fan and all of this stuff. Yeah. So uh, Nicholas Dixon, who I'm, I think I'm a little bit more aligned with his way of thinking. He says like that the the purist, the person who's just like in the abstract interested in like seeing excellent performance, that that person is deficient in some way because they they have no loyalty whatsoever. So they like barely sort of even qualify as as a fan, or at least they're unrecognizable as opposed to most people who are sports fans. Then finally, I would say that there's uh, so sociologists who study this have different ways of thinking about what constitutes fandom. So there's this very famous um, sociological account that divides sports spectators into like four basic groups, depending on the extent of their loyalty to a specific team and also their consumption habits. So meaning like, do they, do they primarily express their devotion to a team by buying the stuff, um, like buying your, the scarves or whatever that are associated with the team? Or do they actually go to games all the time? Um, do they, you know, buy the, the television packages that allow them to be able to watch all of their team's games and all of that stuff? And um, this guy, Richard Giulianotti, who's the, the sociologist who has the most famous taxonomy there of grouping sports fans, he's English, so he tends to use the word spectator for the, the group of people who are most devoted to their teams and also follow them the most closely. And he actually uses the word fan in a somewhat more disparaging way that has more in common with the way we use the, the phrase fan fiction in the United States. So he thinks that what distinguishes fans from supporters is that fans, as he conceives them, tend to be uh, I would say less interested in the games perhaps and more interested in their sort of fantasies about how those players that they like um, are off the field. So there's lots of different ways of thinking about fans. What I would say is I, I want to imagine or understand, excuse me, fans as in as broad of terms as possible. And this is in some ways you know, contrary to the very thing that fans themselves do in trying to draw lines about who's in and who's out. The the reason I want to do this to, to imagine fans quite broadly is that I am interested in the very wide range of things that people do when they um, are invested in and follow sports teams. And I think that if we just adopted wholesale, the the kinds of norms that fans themselves use to establish who's in and who's out, we're sort of like missing a key piece of their fandom or like missing a key practice that they're engaged in, in, in being able to identify themselves as a fan. So I want to be able to have that action of exclusion as where they say like you're in and you're out as, as a fan. I want to be able to incorporate that itself into what we're analyzing such that we can say, what does that actually tell us about, about the role of fandom in this person's lives such that they need to draw such lines? So my broad definition or my broad way of looking at fans is to say, 
there's two basic things that can happen in a wide variety of contexts. First of all, fans are always, to some extent, emotionally invested in the games that they follow. Now, maybe that means that they are devotees of a particular team. Maybe they just really, really, really like tennis, right? And they're like really uh, interested in knowing what happens. And then secondarily, they, fans, are always engaged in some sort of practical activity um, with their sport. And again, that can take a wide range of shapes, depending on who we're talking about, sometimes depending on gender, sometimes depending on region, on class status, and the way that they engage with their sport. For me, all we need is to be a fan, is some feeling about the sport, um, and then also some activity that we engage in in order to uh, connect with the sport. Why is sports fandom what you refer to as a practice of subjectivity? So this idea of practice of subjectivity um, or of subject subjectivization is a, a term that I take from the philosopher Michel Foucault. And basically what Foucault says is that in the world around us, we um, in all sorts of cultures, there are these practices that people engage in that are both what he calls disciplinary practices, meaning um, there are a set of norms involved in um, following them. You have to like learn to behave in certain ways and adopt certain habits. You, Foucault says, subject yourself right to the the rules of say indoctrination in a particular thing. So we can imagine, for example certain forms of religious practice, there are things you have to do, right? You have to, maybe you have to take communion, you have to engage in certain kinds of rituals. You also then might, if you're a religious practitioner, um, engage in, uh, in individual activities like fasting and prayer. You might um, engage in learning activities where you acquire knowledge about the, say, religious text of the community of which you're a part. So there are these things that you have to do that are broadly speaking, kind of like work, basically, like we have to, uh, they require a lot of effort. But the, the flip side of that, Foucault says, is that those things have a way of contributing to the creation of one's identity as a subject. And by subject here, we mean like subject in the, the root sense of the word subjective. So like meaning it's one who is a subject is like a first person experiencer of like saying I am I am this thing so the if I can say that one more time a subjectivity is like the first person experience of being an I so when Foucault says that something is a practice of subjectivization he has these like two different meanings of the word subject in mind on the one hand we subordinate ourselves to a particular discipline and on the other we become a certain kind of subject a certain kind of self so what I'm saying in my book is that sports fandom is one of these kinds of practices that a primary, I would say, motivation for sports fans to continue with their sports fandom, which is in many cases, lots of work. So um, involving, you know, staying up on statistics, involving traveling to see your team, involving decorating your house in particular ways, involving buying your team's jerseys, um, involving knowing arguing with people. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That all of that stuff, there are, first of all, like sets of norms associated with that. You have to learn like how to be a fan in the right way, especially when we're talking about being a fan of a specific team. 
but that the the sort of trade-off that people get from this, all this effort, is that they get to feel themselves as a particular kind of I. And so that particular I or that that self that people get from from identifying with a team and, and being a fan, I think takes a, a variety of forms. So it winds up being um, gendered, and we can talk more about that if you want, but basically in this country in particular, um, sports fandom is one of the, or is a really important feature for many men and boys of learning how to be appropriately masculine and understanding themselves as, um, as men. Additionally, in many cases, that those practices of sports fandom are crucial for people feeling themselves to be members of a specific community or region. And historically, especially in the American South, um, where I'm from, where um, racial segregation, even in college sports, continued up through and into the 1970s, that kind of identification has also been um, pretty strongly racialized as well in ways that people are still, especially, I think, in the South, attempting to understand and grapple with. So it's interesting that you talked about the I, because Mm -hmm. now I want to talk about the we. So mm-hmm. I've, I've mentioned that I'm a LeBron James fan and I want to be clear about I'm a LeBron James fan. So whatever team he goes to, that becomes my my team. Right. And so when LeBron James won his championships, I said that we won championships. When LeBron and the Lakers win a game, I say we won. Right. So I, I wonder, what is it about being a fan that makes a fan feel part of a we? That's a great question. So the interesting thing about this, I think, is that this we identification tends to work most effectively in cases of team sports over individual sports. So I'd say um, uh, people like yourself are are less common, um, whose we is mobile based on a a specific individual, though certainly that, that happens. So I think the reason that this works most effectively for team sports is that there's the idea of there being a team if as such that is persistent over time, right? So like from one year to the next, we have different players that populate that particular team um, for teams that have existed for an extremely long time, um, like since since the 19th century, many baseball teams. Obviously, the thing that is, say, the New York Yankees today is has virtually nothing in common um, on a certain level with the, the group of people who made up and were um, the New York Yankees, you know, when in the 19th century. So in order for us to believe that there is this thing that is like the persistent team over time, what happens is we have to, of course, like subsume the individuals that make up that team um, into a symbol of this larger unit, right, that is capable of going on um, across time and despite all these like personnel changes and stuff like that. So what happens, I think, with um, rooting for a team is that we engage in this really interesting psychological phenomenon in which we identify with that team, with the symbols of that team, such that, first of all, we're able to say, because, for example, if we go back to the Yankees, because this one team has like always worn the pinstripes, say, um, and has been associated with this particular location, we understand themselves as a singular metaphysical unit. But that also because we have all of these symbolic features like the pinstripes that that enable us to to group those people together, I suppose, 
that enables us really easily as individual fans to group ourselves with that team too, so that we become sort of part of that team mentally. And I think we have practices that we engage in that that make that easier for ourselves. So when we show up to the the game wearing our team's colors and all of that stuff, we symbolically become part of the team at the same time. So this is why I think we are able to feel our victories, as you're saying, not as as uh, theirs, right? right? I don't feel like, you know, oh, good for LeBron that he won, right? <laughs> um, like, no, no, we won. So what I try to argue in the book is that that, that sort of feeling, that we feeling winds up being really important for devoted sports fans because that identification with the group, which at that point is not just the team, but everyone else who is a fan of that team, that that identification is able to move beyond the stadium or the court and that it's able to become a kind of uh, like proxy for other forms of, of group identity. So most obviously, for many people, regional identity. So we can feel like a connection to the people around us um, and to imagine that we are part of some singular community, despite the fact that in many cases we have like almost nothing in common. Yeah. So there's lots of different ways by which we accomplish this, many of which are symbolic, like the, the colors, like I'm mentioning, things like mascots, I think, are important. Additionally, all of the ways that fans are initiated into their communities, right? So you like learn cheers associated with with your team, specific ways of talking about them. Even um, you learn to feel certain ways toward uh, like your rivals, right? Oh, yeah. Like, hate the right people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's a crucial part of that exclusion of, of other people is an important part of forming that we that is associated with um, the team and sports fandom. So you just mentioned you mentioned mascots, and that's something that I think all of us are familiar with, even if we're not into into sports. But in your book, you also introduce us to a very interesting concept called mascotting, which I was not familiar with prior to reading. What is mascotting, and how is it mm-hmm. different from from hero worship in sports? Okay, so I'll say at the at the beginning of this that one of the the things that really motivated me individually to try to write this book was to basically try to make sense of a phenomenon that I experienced growing up as a white person in the South, essentially. So what I mean by that is this, there's lots and lots of white fans who I knew growing up who were obsessive followers of, um, in, in my case, football, who were really invested in and were followers of specific black athletes on the field, but then had basically no connections to people of color off of the field. And in fact, were in some cases actively racist and hostile, openly so, to to black folks um, off the field. And so I was like, what in the world is happening here? How are we supposed to make sense of your willingness to cheer for these guys, for example, in the context of a sporting event and not to, to make that connection outside of it? So for me, looking at the difference between hero worship and mascotting is a way of parsing different forms of fan identification with individual players. So basically what I argue in the book is that both hero worship and mascotting um, involve fans imaginatively identifying with individual players, right? Holding up an individual player as somebody who is somehow 
representative of them or who is, you know, whose success they feel as their own, I guess is the best way of putting it. But what I wanted to say is that not all such identifications are equal. And if we pay attention to the ways that white fans in particular tend to identify with guys like Tim Tebow, who are sort of larger than life white football heroes versus these uh, players like um, I mentioned in the book, Kevin Ware, who was um, a player on the University of Louisville's, I believe, 2013 um, national championship team, or this guy named Tyron Matthew, who was an LSU player at the time. Um, so both of these young men were black, black athletes who were apparently embraced by the largely white fan bases of their their schools. But what I argue and what I found in in looking at the ways that that these fans actually identify with these guys is that when many white players are identifying with such young men, they're not actually treating them as full human beings, but rather that when players are treated like mascots, they are treated as useful objects who can bring fans glory, who can enable fans when they identify with them on the field or court um, to have these feelings that they associate with um, power and dominance and like hyper-masculinity and stuff like that, but with whom they do not have a relationship off the field. And they don't seem particularly interested in those people off the field or when there's no, they're no longer useful to them. Um, I think we see a massive contrast to that when we look at the way that, say, white evangelicals were interested in following somebody like Tim Tebow, excuse me, who is of massive interest off the field because of his religious commitments, because of who they, you know, thought about the way that they thought of him as one of us. And so for me, I guess one way of conceptualizing the difference between mascotting and hero worship is that the, the person who is hero worship just treated like as our community representative like he's one of us right he's one of us who's made good right whereas the person who's mascotted is ours is treated like an, an object or a commodity rather than a member of the community and i should say that the the way that i think about this is largely informed by malcolm x's de- description of his own experience of playing on a sports team um in his in his autobiography so which actually so that his so it's like the second chapter of his autobiography. He talks about um, how when he's in this largely white high school, that he is um, for a time a basketball star. And he um, is even elected, I believe, it's like president of his class or something like that. And he says he now realizes, looking back on it, that he was being treated like a mascot. He says that, that these people didn't want to have anything to do with him outside of what he could um, symbolically bring to to the school in terms of like victories on the court and things like that. That when it came to actually, you know, talking about his future in the community and if he could go on to to law school and things like that, his even his teachers were saying like, no, 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 no that's not that's not the kind of job that you should be involved with. And so it's like, oh, no, we all love you, but we don't want you to be more than what we imagine you as, essentially. And that's, that's for me, the, the fundamental 
sign of mascotting is that as long as you're useful to us in this particular way, we're happy to have you here. But stepping out of line or doing something that's not expected or making yourself non-useful in that way to the largely white fan base results in, in backlash or worse. This is insightful, right? I, I, so now I, I, I get a greater sense about what mascotting is and also kind of the connection between mascotting and white supremacy. But I want to kind of look at the connection between mascotting and gender, particularly misogyny. So what is the relationship of connection between mascotting and misogyny? So I think this is complicated, but it's mascotting is an interesting phenomenon that sort of helps us to recognize the extent to which racism and sexism or racism and misogyny are sort of mutually reinforcing of, of one another. So one of the things I mentioned about mascotting is that um, the one of the ways that a, a usually a young man who's mascotted becomes useful to sports fans who, who treat him in this way is that by identifying with him, they're enabled to engage in this kind of fantasy of, of domination or power on the field or court, right? Which is, I think, usually translated into hypermasculinity. So sexism and misogyny, which frankly has characterized a lot of mainstream sports culture, tends to view femininity as basically diametrically opposed to this, to, to power, to physical dominance in, in all of this, which is, of course, where you have this, I think, pervasive tradition of, of misogynist and like homophobic language in sports. So mascotting is about imaginatively uh, using these players to, to gain access to these feelings of dominance, which, like in the case of Malcolm X, sometimes means literally using them to try to play out sort of fantasies of misogynist abuse. And what I have in mind there is Malcolm X talks about how guys, white students in his class would, you know, try to get him to get together sexually, basically, with these white girls that, that they knew, sometimes girls who were their sisters. Yeah, uh, because they, he says, he thought they were, there was something about that that was like titillating to them or, or something. And that the fact that mascotting of black men specifically involves these racist notions of uh, hypersexuality or something means that um, he's used in this particular way by, by his white classmates more frequently than, you know, that sort of outright um, explicit usage to play out those kind of fantasies, though, I think it means mascotting means for a lot of uh, white fans sort of describing and imagining black men as as hypersexual or powerful or something like that. Um, or Patricia Hill Collins puts it as, as suggesting that these these black men who are athletes are, are hyper heterosexual. And um, if you look at the kind of, of language that that white fans sometimes use to describe black athletes, who they're identifying with, they'll use these almost like animalistic terms or dominance terms or um, things that are explicitly references to physicality in a what I think is a, a common white supremacist fantasy, which is, again, like sort of dependent upon or are related to the subordination of, of women as well, that we have to have as opposed to this hypermasculinity and dominance, the idea that that it requires the acquisition or subordination and other means of, of women. So let's let's talk a little bit about women, particularly women fans, women in sports. 
And in your book, you bring up, and I didn't, I didn't know this, being a LeBron James fan, it goes to show there's some knowledge, there's some propositions I'm not familiar with. <laughs> but there's a, there's a LeBron James grandmother's fan club. And I wonder if you could talk, talk a little bit more about that fan club and how are they an example of fandom as an act of resistance? Mm-hmm. So I was so delighted to learn of the LeBron James Grandmother's Fan Club, which I actually learned through a show on the Cooking Channel of all places. They were featured on on the Cooking Channel. They were making um, food for one of their meetings or something. (laughs) So to be clear, the grandmothers are fans of LeBron James. They are not LeBron James (laughs) grandmothers, right? So this is a group of uh, older women who are grandmothers, who many of whom are older women of color. There's many initially were from Akron, though if you go to their website now, you can find out they're from all over the country now, including of course Los Angeles. Oh wow! So they are women who are fans of LeBron James. They get together to watch LeBron's games all the time. They have been around, interestingly, since I believe 2006. And so one of the things that I really love about them and that I think is um, an interesting feature of their fandom is that they refuse to sever their ties with LeBron when he initially moved away from Cleveland, right? So initially LeBron, when he first is uh, entering the NBA, he's he's at uh, Cleveland, um, near where he grew up, of course, in Akron. And when he, in 2010, um, decided to go to Miami, of course, there was, you know, outrage is putting it mildly on the part of, of, of many Cleveland fans. People burned his jersey. The owner uh, of the Cavaliers wrote this scathing and terrible open letter in the newspaper suggesting that LeBron was somehow like a terrible example for children and he's disloyal and like none of us would want our children to grow up to be like LeBron because he um, doesn't know how to be loyalty, loyal excuse me, to, to his hometown. Um, people said even worse things than this about him. And LeBron James Grandmother's Fan Club, they say, look, we, um, when LeBron moves, we um, move our loyalty as well. Um, and they did this explicitly, they said, because they think about him as an example of being a role model of, of what is possible for kids and particularly, um, you know, kids from their community of Akron. So I think, first of all, the fact that they refuse to uh, engage in the kind of, I would say, unfair response to LeBron um, that other people did uh, is important. And I think it's important because of what, to connect it back to what I was saying before, because of what mascotting tends to expect, particularly of young Black men, that they be useful to the team and particularly to the white fan base of the team um, and not um, do anything to disturb that usefulness. I think when athletes refuse to do that, right, when they um, demonstrate that they are in fact full human beings whose lives and interests move beyond that of being a mascot, very often they wind up being penalized, uh, to put it mildly, by by fans. And there's a, quite a lot of backlash, as I mentioned. So the fact, first of all, that the LeBron James Grandmother's Fan Club was, you know, explicitly wanting to remind people of LeBron's humanity and of um, the idea of him needing to do what, uh, as they put it, like what would better himself. That's important. But additionally, the LeBron James Grandmother's Fan Club isn't just about getting together and watching sports. So they, in keeping with their idea that 
LeBron is an important example of what can come from Akron is that they, beyond getting together to watch the game, they'll also, they're also involved in community advocacy and they also do work on mentoring um, young people and particularly kids, encouraging them to stay in school and all of that. And so I think that the fact that they are using their sports fandom, not just to like imagine themselves as part of a we, then once we leave the stadium, but then saying like, let's take this and go beyond the sporting context into doing good in our communities. And that they're doing this as women and older women, and many of them being older women of color, I think is significant and important given that the sports context has so often been both derisive of of women and has wanted to treat um, people of color more broadly as as disposable. So usually when I ask men in general why they don't follow certain women's sports teams, and uh, they use basketball as an example, mm-hmm. one of the things they say, well, there's no dunking involved. You know, uh, <laughs> the dunking, it's so weird. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> These women really can't do kind of the like bodily aesthetic things that a Kyrie Irving can do. So that's usually the, 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 the response that I get. But we see in the case, for example, of, Tennis, for example, people don't really have those particular arguments. I wonder how much they hold up. So my question is, is why why don't women's sports teams who often do much better than their brother teams, for example, U.S. soccer is in a prime example. Mm -hmm. Why don't don't they accumulate the same amount of fans as their male counterparts? I think it's a great question. Um, I think there is a complicated causal story to tell here. And I think actually it does the, the difference. Uh, as your example suggests, does have something to do with the the role of team sports versus individual sports and the fact that people tend to relate differently to team sports than they do individual sports. So I think part of it is just a sh- like sheer history. So there just is not the same tradition, I suppose, in many cases of uh, fandom for women's sports because there just is a shorter history of women's sports, um, competitive women's sports, such that you'd be able to even follow these teams. So given that sports fandom, team sports fandom, very often is about uh, a long tradition of following certain kinds of rituals associated with the team, that missing history is going to result, I think, in people having fewer connections to it. So I think that's that's part of it. But I would say probably a bigger part of it, and and probably more relevant, say, in the case of, of women's soccer, because soccer, in, at least in this country, has a has quite short history in terms of its popularity, is that there's a much longer and more pervasive tradition, I suppose, of second-class status for women in, in all features of life, right? So that the perception of that whatever women are doing is, is less important or sort of of lesser quality or is, is something, as like Simone de Beauvoir would say, is, is other than the, the main or the core of a community whenever men are doing that thing. So that we would understand, even at the collegiate level, that the men's team just like is the team, right, of, of that institution, whereas the women's team is the women's team and, and historically has been called the lady balls or the lady tigers or the <laughs> lady knights is maybe my favorite most ridiculous one um, in terms of the added piece of ladies to it 
But yeah, I mean, I think that there's, that's a great question specifically with regard to the, the women's national soccer team. And I think this is the fact that there's not a good explanation for this other than sexism is really obvious in their case and, and is part of the reason that they are, you know, they are bringing the, the lawsuit about, um, right. you know, pay inequity um, with the men's team. Can we assume that 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 fans of women's sports? So somebody, someone may be listening, saying, "Hey, but I'm a I'm a fan of a sports team, of a women's sports team. I mean, I should get woke credit, right? <laughs> like I'm doing well. <laughs> like give me my my ethical credit." But, but I wonder, can we assume that that fans of women's sports teams are not perpetrators of some of the ills that you highlight in the context of Max Gotten? So I guess the short answer is no, not exactly. <laughs> right. um, uh, I don't think we can assume this. So what I'll say is this. I think that this country is just full of unacknowledged white supremacy. Um, So I think that it is just as plausible that white fans are relating to somebody like Elena Deladon differently than they are relating to Brittany Griner. And we would need like a a more sort of expansive uh, study of that than I have done thus far to be able to to say so for sure. So, But I, I don't think that we can assume that out of the gate. What I will say is that there's a somewhat, I think, ironic kind of flip side of the reason that people pay less attention to women's sports. Because people pay less attention to women's sports because they have sort of sexist ideas about women not being able to be dominating or powerful or or whatever it is, that has a sort of ironic side effect, and that's that it tends to make them less susceptible to mascotting. So, in this, even though this means that people tend to take women's sports less seriously, because I think it doesn't for folks who are importing all of this sexism to their perception of the women's game, they don't think they're going to get the same kind of excitement and the the dunking, right? Which is this sort of um, uh, symbolic motion of physical dominance over the hoop and all of this because they don't think they're going to get that they don't want to watch the sport but at the same time that means i think that the women are less susceptible to being mascotted because they are not viewed as capable of bringing about the same fantasy right the same fantasy of of domination that men and particularly black men are imagined to provide for these fans So, Erin, I wonder about your relationship with sports as you were growing up, particularly in the context of being a player. Did you play any sports? Do you presently play any sports? Mm. Um, So I played soccer when I was growing up. And I, for one year, tried to play softball. And I was really, really bad at it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I, the way that I engage with sports tended to be watching sports and less playing them. But it's interesting that you mentioned soccer. I I play play basketball. So with basketball, you kind of need like handball coordination. And I remember off season because they always encourage us to kind of play another sport off season and kind of develop some other kind of skills and, you know, improve different muscles in the off season. And mm-hmm. one of those sports was soccer. And I could not adjust from handball coordination to feetball coordination. Yeah. So it so in my in my own thinking, I would think, oh, of course, anybody can succeed, will be able to at least enter softball, right? Handball, but soccer would just would be very very difficult. But for you, you found soccer to be much easier than 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 softball. 
That's interesting. Well, I, it was the first thing I did. I don't know if it was easier. <laughs> I'm not particularly athletic. I'll say that. I mean, I, um, I work out now. Um, okay. It's the, maybe the first time in my life that I've actually consistently done physical activity. Ah, interesting. Um, yeah. No, I mean, um, it's funny because my, my first engagement with sports was always by watching. And there's nothing like actually trying to play sports for the first time that makes you realize like, man, I really got to rethink the way that I'm like yelling at these guys on the field. Right. Because <laughs> uh, their, of course, job is to make it look easy. And it's way less easy than it looks. Right. So now I'm interested in your fandom. So what kind of fan are you and who are you a fan of? So I would say right now I am a conflicted fan. (laughs) Um, Yeah, if I can put it that way. Um, So, I mean, let me say this. I I grew up, as I mentioned, watching football more than anything. Mm. Football is definitely the dominant sport where I am from in the deep South. And it is something that I still feel, frankly, emotionally attached to um, because it was so much a part of um, growing up where I did. But it's also something that I'm deeply troubled by ethically for a variety of reasons, the most important one of which is the extent to which football is and has been demonstrated to be in recent years, enormously damaging to the bodies and including the brains of of the men who play it. So I watch a lot less football than I used to. And sometimes I think I should stop watching entirely. But one, I'm still undecided about whether that's the best way to support the men who still play. And two, gosh, it's hard to give up. <laughs> if, uh, when one has been a follower of a sport for so long, you know, even if I don't watch for most of the year, it gets to be playoffs. And I'm like, God, you know, I need to know what's going on. So yeah, I still watch football. Some, um, I'm a baseball fan as well. I really actually really enjoy watching basketball, but because I didn't grow up watching it, I am like that person who always, when the whistle blows, I'm like, ah, I pretend that I know what's going on, but I don't. <laughs> right, 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 right. Are you, are you, uh, can you name out any of these fans, uh, any of these sports teams? So, so give me, uh, just, just for disclosure, who, who's your favorite basketball team, football team, baseball team? So my favorite basketball team is the Atlanta Dream. Oh, good answer. <laughs> yes, exactly. So my favorite baseball team varies. I suppose, because actually where I grew up, college baseball is more of a a thing than it is virtually anywhere else in the country. So I want to say LSU is like my favorite, most everything, because that's what I grew up watching. But I am also a Cincinnati Reds fan because my partner is from Cincinnati. And so I have been watching the Reds for the last several years. They are atrocious. (laughs) Um, so uh, it's one of those non-fulfilling and the the really emotionally euphoric sense of fandoms and then in terms of football um yeah i'm an lsu fan first but also i'm a saints fan it was a you say lsu and what's the other a saints fan yeah so the the uh yeah still don't know what to say exactly about that last uh playoff game okay (laughs) okay so aaron I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for asking me. 
For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.